0: Wonder what you're missing out on by not being a Patreon member? Here's a few clips from my conversations with our Patreon members.
1: I love you even more now that we've got a chance to chat because you are who I thought you were.
0: Well, thank you so much. That is really nice of you to take the time. Well, I appreciate you listening and donating. Like I said, that really does mean a lot to me. And sorry if I gave you too much homework, but I really think, if anything, at least the last 10 years of stuff that I spent, like that's probably the best stuff that I have right there for you. So, yeah,
1: no, that's awesome. I'm excited. Thanks so much
0: going to automatically raise your price probably like 3x of what you could charge locally. So how would I reach out to those people? Honestly, Facebook groups. Just start with that. Okay.
1: Sure, yeah. I love all these points and uh, the tools that you suggested.
0: That's what I'm saying. It's like I don't necessarily know all the answers, but I think I can point you in all the right directions or at least we can kind of brainstorm, you know? Yeah, sure. I mean, this this is really useful because it's new for me. But you know, now that you have saved this, I was like, oh, you know, now I should be focusing on this as well. So, this is great. Yeah, thank you so much.
1: What is your end game, Austin? Where do you want to be with this once you've got 300 episodes? What happens?
0: My end game is to help you grow your current or future business via these interviews. In order to bring you these interviews, we need your financial support. So, if you enjoy the show, would you take a minute to support us by going to millionaire-interviews.com forward slash Patreon. What's in it for you by donating? Well, after signing up on Patreon, you'll instantly receive an email to schedule a call with a really cool guy that'll help you with your business. Plus, you'll feel really good about yourself, knowing that because you donated, you kept the host of this cool podcast off the streets and off drugs.
1: What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things i have ever heard at no point in your rambling incoherent response were you even close to anything that could be considered a rational thought everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it i award you no points and may god have mercy on your soul a couple of mornings when i saw the sun come up five. 50 a.m. or 6 a.m. or whatever it was and a couple of days i just had tears coming out of my eyes i'm like what am i doing why is this stuff not working yet am i losing my mind maybe i should go back to my job etc etc there's a lot of times where you're going to want to give up so you got to find things that are at least you're good at so it's not that difficult whenever you want to give up
0: and what kept you going when you were at those points? Because I think all of us reached those breaking points in starting a business.
1: I just refused to fail. Money,
0: money, money,
1: money. It was really hard on them. We all had six figure salaries, and all of a sudden now we're eating ramen and bread and whatnot.
0: Those first 10 parking garages, did everything run smoothly or anything go wrong?
1: You're a funny guy. <laughs> so the first garage was... You know, the first 10 garages, I was a support guy. We didn't even have a support person to support the product. I couldn't even hire somebody and train them or something because I didn't even know what to tell them to do because I didn't know what challenges we were going to face. My name is Juan Rodriguez, and I am 37 years old. I'm based out of Austin, Texas, and the name of my company with my co-founders is called Flash Parking. Flash parking, think about it kind of like a cash register and access control for anybody that has a parking asset that is looking to make money out of it. So if you have a valet stand, if you have a garage, if you have an event space and you have contract parkers that pay you a monthly fee, we have software and hardware to help you manage that parking asset.
0: Was it a dream of yours to create parking software or hardware when you were growing up?
1: It was not. I never thought I would be doing this. I don't think I know anybody that's grown up and said, Hey, I want to be in the parking industry. Maybe if you were born into a parking family or something, but no, I don't. That was not our goal. I had a business in the past with one of my co-founders in this business, and we sold it to a company here in Austin. That's where we ended up in Austin. And after four and a half years with that company, we decided we want to get out of corporate America and go back and try to build something else. And his wife, Brought up the idea to us to get into the parking business. She was selling services to hotels and she had to valet park roughly about 10 to 15 times a day. We would have dinner and whatnot, and she'll say, Hey, listen, you guys are doing financial services and mobile payment in your jobs. I have a big problem with my job, which is I'm valeting every day so many times, and I've got a problem where I have to carry cash. So I can pay and tip for a valet. This is back in 2011. And I also have to wait outside. A lot of times in the heat, this is in South Florida or in the rain, waiting for the valets to retrieve my car. So she's saying to us, why don't you just use what you guys learned in your job to create a solution that I can use my phone to request my car from a valet stand, pay and tip. And we're like, well, we don't know anything about parking. You know, is that really a big business and whatnot? So we started kind of looking into it. We found out there's a $34 billion market in the US of people paying for parking fees. And we kind of started getting into it a little bit more. And we would explain this idea to multiple people. Most people could relate to this problem that we didn't know was a really a problem. So we went and built a system that would allow that to happen. But then we couldn't sell enough of it because it wasn't solving the parking operator's real pain points. Parking operators, especially on the valet side, they didn't have any infrastructure. Typically, they have a key box that they roll out to the middle of the street and they have a sign and then they have tickets and then they collect cash. They've been doing that for many, many years. When we showed them the solution, they thought it was cute, but they had bigger problems. They didn't know how many keys they had. They couldn't do calculated rates. They couldn't accept credit card transactions. So we pivoted quickly and ended up building a mobile point of sale system or tiny ERP system for the valet space. And then we started selling and started growing. And then those same clients also operate other types of parking facility like automated garages and automated surface lots and so on. So they asked us to expand our functionality and to take our cloud-based infrastructure and move it over to that space. That's how we ended up pivoting again and evolving the product sets that we provide today.
0: Okay. At first, you just kind of did one thing and that's focusing on the ballet and then you've expanded, you said, your services, but it's all kind of similar in a way, obviously, with the parking. But how we talk a little bit more about the beginning of your company and that first product that you ended up making so we can totally understand how you actually started making money in the beginning and how you started validating the
1: idea? Wow. Well, all right. I'm going to have to start crying here. So it's three co-founders.
0: And what year, just to make sure we all on the same page?
1: In 2011. Okay. Yes. So the three of us had this idea. We want to create a company. We had five different ideas. And again, we chose the parking one for those reasons. We would go and pitch these five ideas to multiple people. And they're like, oh, I think you have your best bet on the parking one. They couldn't understand pretty much the other ones. We bootstrapped it. Well, two of us had saved up a little bit of money. So we used that money to kind of take care of our kids and pay our mortgage and that kind of stuff. And didn't get a salary for almost a year. Our third partner didn't have that much money. So we ended up using some of our savings to cover bare bones minimum. I don't even know if it's $50,000 or $60,000 to pay for an apartment with two bedrooms. And the second bedroom was actually our office for a long time. That's where all the magic started happening.
0: What type of magic, business magic or sexual?
1: (laughs) It was mainly development magic. That's where... A lot of the initial set of code was written, and then I would go to the bathroom so I can take some calls, locking myself up in the bathroom like if I'm, that was my office. That's how we got started. It's pretty typical bootstrap kind of story. We would iron out the workflow of how the software should work and write code until three or four o'clock in the morning, and then test it on the fly, and then try it the next day. We did that for a lot of days. I mean, it took maybe more than six months until we had a first mvp a minimum viable product
0: Mm -hmm. you're in austin texas this whole time
1: yes this is all in austin texas
0: okay so this was kind of cool i haven't heard about that as far as you third co-founder instead of maybe necessarily giving him money maybe you gave him some money for groceries and stuff too but basically you've paid for an apartment for him and then y'all would use his spare bedroom as a place that y'all meet in the living room that was basically like your office at first
1: yeah it was the bathroom it was the second room and the living room okay We actually had some investors come to the living room and we pitched them there.
0: Yeah. Was that awkward for them at all?
1: At that point, it was happening. It was common and they were from the West Coast. There's a lot of houses in San Francisco and Palo Alto, whatever, that kind of do that. That's not typical here in Austin, right. but yeah, it was okay. When they came in, we went to the refrigerator and got them some drinks and we just sat down on the coffee table and chatted.
0: Yeah. Well, so was this like an apartment or was it like- It
1: was. It was a complex. It was an apartment complex.
0: Okay, cool. All right. Yeah. I just wanted to make sure that I totally understood that. Would you have gotten in trouble if they found out that you were doing a business out of there or no, that y'all were like coming there versus the other guy who- Actually, lived there.
1: We didn't have a lot of people coming. Right. The three of us would meet there pretty much every day. I mean, it wasn't like we were manufacturing anything there. We're just kind of using a computer on the phone. I don't think we really would have gotten into trouble. And the number of times we had visitors from a business standpoint was small. So I doubt it.
0: Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I just didn't know how many people you're coming in and out. It's pitching and stuff like that. Cause yeah, I would have thought maybe you would have gone somewhere else, but as far as maybe getting all that together, the three of y'all working together, was that easy for the guy living there? Cause you said sometimes you're working there till like three or four in the morning. I mean, if he wanted to get his own free time, he too bad. Is that really it?
1: When you are determined to make a startup successful, you kind of put your life on pause, for lack of better terms. For the first couple of years, we couldn't even go break bread anywhere or go anywhere that we weren't talking about the business. I mean, we've been in this more than seven years and it's still the same, not to that same intensity. The first couple of years, that's all we did. This is really difficult to build a business and you got to give it all you got.
0: And it was three of y'all you were saying. Did y'all have any personal like family or anything or relationships that you had at the same time? Were any of y'all married or anything?
1: Two of us were married with a kid each. And then the third one did not have any family. So the one that lived in the apartment, luckily he didn't have a family. We weren't disturbing his personal life too much.
0: So with Patreon, I heard it many times because you have that many episodes of sign up. So that's always in the back of mind. But then I checked it out a few times and I was like, do I really want to do this? So I'll push it off a little bit. And then you posted your goal achievement of 69 Patreon members. And I was like, you know what, what better time than now? Originally, I was gonna go for the lower one the $9 a month. But one, I want to have the conversation with you. But two, I always find that anytime I cheap out, I always find that I want to return it and upgrade to what I really, really wanted. So that's why I'm paying the higher one, if that makes sense. But it was just constantly pushing it all, pushing it off. And then I was just like, fuck it. I already listened to all of them. So why not? Appreciate you doing the call here.
1: Yeah. Favorite podcast by far. I love it.
0: Oh, yeah? What is that?
1: So I graduated 2017 from Michigan. I heard that shout out the other day. That was pretty cool. Basically, two months after I graduated, I started listening to the podcast. Loved it. I think there were maybe 30 episodes or something out by that point and I consider myself to be pretty entrepreneurial. Started a business last year, this helped a ton. And it's hard, I think, to find entrepreneurs. I was just looking for entrepreneurial meetups. And I think, wow, this is more of an awesome opportunity to talk with other entrepreneurs. The value is, I mean, it's insane. Like People make these types of entrepreneurial insight things of thousands of dollars. This is 12 per month, but 12 per month is like nothing.
0: Were your wives okay with as much as y'all were working in the beginning? Because obviously I think a lot of people know, especially in the beginning, how much you have to work to do all this and you're not making any money, especially. So you were working that hard and not making money. Was your family at all worried about that?
1: I'm speaking for my other co-founder's wife and for mine, they were very supportive to the process. So to give you an idea, when I first talked to my wife then about starting a business, she was pregnant with my first child. I talked to her and I said, listen, once the kid is five years old, it will be difficult for me to try to do something then. I think we have an opportunity to do it now, because if we live in a shack and he's riding on the walls, he'll be probably he or she would be really happy. So we kind of said, look, worst case scenario, if it doesn't work out, we have college degrees and whatnot. We can always get a job. We succeeded in corporate America, so we can always go back there. I kind of felt we had this opportunity where we had to take it then. And luckily, both of our wives were very supportive and our third co-founder didn't have a relationship. So that was easy for them. But it was really hard on them. A lot of times we miss a lot of family stuff or we couldn't go on a trip or we all had six figure salaries. And all of a sudden now we're eating ramen and bread and whatnot.
0: That's a big lifestyle change. How old were you when you actually started flash parking here in 2011?
1: 30, I guess, or 29
0: to go from like being successful in that type of business, right? And the financial services to downgrading your life so you can see a future of building your own business. A lot of people, I feel like after you get stuck making that money, that you wouldn't want to do that. So what was your drive to want to start this company with your co-founders?
1: Well, I've got to tell you another story then. stationed in the Pentagon for a few years. I was in the US Army. And then when I got out I worked for government contractor and one of my mentors in that company, I was an Oracle database administrator and this guy was like a super senior one. He made a big mistake one day and truncated some data by just hitting one key on a keyboard. And his life got turned upside down. He ended up getting fired. He ended up getting a divorce because then he was having a hard time getting other jobs. It was complicated. I wanted to get to what I call being financially independent, if I ever go back to corporate America and I get fired for something that I did or didn't do or got laid off, that my family and myself, I wouldn't suffer. Since then, I've kind of been thinking, OK, I got to do my own thing that I can control it and be financially independent and be able to weather the storm when things go sour. That's really my motivation and probably at least one of the other co-founders also. It's uncertain out there and obviously doing a startup is really difficult, but we thought that we had a really good idea and we had a pretty good team. We felt the three of us brought different things to the equation and it's like, okay, if somebody can do it, we can do this. I think everything aligned and it was a good time to get this started.
0: And I think that's important even when it happened, that situation that you're talking about where the guy got fired for pressing the delete key by accident. His whole life, like you said, turned upside down. It's funny, the little things that will happen in our lives that we remember to make us want to start our own companies or do something like that to be financially free, right?
1: Oh, yeah. No, I remember the day that that happened. I remember him being walked out of the office. And I remember the command that he hit. He's basically logged into a terminal remotely in an Oracle database. And he's switching back from production to QA or to one of the user acceptance testing. And he's truncating some data. And he ended up doing it in the wrong one. And then he had an issue with the backups. And the backups wouldn't restore from tape. This is back in the day when you had to store stuff on tape. And it was just a freaking disaster, man. The company lost some money. He just made one little tiny mistake that kind of motivated me to do my own thing
0: you're doing your own thing with your co-founders there. The first couple of months, at least you were saying, or maybe even six months or a year, did you make any money? Oh
1: no, <laughs> me personally or the company?
0: Let's say both because obviously you wanted to do this so you can be personally financially free as well, Everyone's excited about starting the company in the beginning, right? But then after you get into it, after so many months and you're not making money, I could see that maybe it get frustrating or tiring or like what hurdles did you have to go through in those first few months?
1: I don't think we have enough time to cover all the hurdles. There's a lot of ups and downs. We're talking about there were a lot more downs than up. But I think in the first 12 months, we made a total of revenue, maybe $3,000 of actual paid revenue. None of that went to any of us.
0: Yeah, because I mean, you're not even covering anything, right?
1: No, you're not even covering...
0: Maybe two months of rent for your guy. That's about it.
1: <laughs> exactly. It was nothing. We spend most of our time learning from customers, doing a lot of trial and error. In myself, I spend probably 40 to 50% of my time trying to raise money from investors, venture funds and things like that, or super angels. That's what my role was. It was part of doing the product side of the house, determining what we should build, just fundraising and It was a full-time job just trying to get these people to listen to what I had to say. Did you ever get any fundraising? We did. We started in June and we closed our first round in April of 2012. So we raised about a million and a quarter back then in different tranches. It took me, what was it, like nine months or something to be able to close this round. People wanted to see more traction. They wanted to see all kinds of stuff. The other thing that was kind of difficult is that nobody knew anything about parking. You can't go and buy a list of places that have valet parking, for example, right? That list doesn't exist. It doesn't even exist today. Most cities require you to register a business. And if you look at even Austin, there's probably, I don't know, 20 valet stands that are registered and there's hundreds of valet stands all over the city. Investors want to know market size and they want to do a bunch of stuff in this industry. That data is not as rarely available as there is for other industries.
0: Well, that's interesting. Yeah, because I wouldn't have thought about that. Because that's even like, let's say, how many hot dog stands are there in Austin, Texas? You can maybe have an estimation, but you don't really know because that's not something that people would put on the internet necessarily,
1: right? That's right. One thing we ended up doing, we ended up hiring some folks out of the Philippines really cheap, 4 bucks an hour or something, to go and scrape Yelp back then and find out which restaurants or venues had valet stance or didn't have valet.
0: Okay, that's smart.
1: So that's how we kind of build up over 10,000 locations because the investors wanted to say, hey, how big is this market? And we're like, well, we don't know because this data doesn't exist. I mean, we talked to the National Parking Association and all this other, there's a bunch of different parking associations. We're calling them saying, hey, we're trying to get this data. And they're like, yeah, once you find it, let me know, because we're really interested in that data as well.
0: Right. And that first year, were you just working with the valet parking? Why don't we just expand year by year here as far as like what your company did? Because we know at least the first year, you obviously didn't make too much money. But I mean, it must have been exciting, at least raising funds. So you knew you were on the right track.
1: The first year was where we tried just selling the vision of allowing people to use their phones to request their car and pay and tip and not a lot of traction happening. We could quickly pivoted and started doing the mobile point of sale for valet. And then that started getting a little bit more traction. We can show that people were willing to pay a couple hundred bucks a month for this service and things like that. So we started kind of showing that to investors. And then they felt more comfortable with the idea of making that investment. So that's what we did on the first year. On the second year, it was purely product development. We knew that there was a market there. We knew that people had a pain point and that we had their aspirin that can solve their headache. We started meeting a lot with different parking operators and understanding what this thing needed to do. And then we just started use the money that we got to hire a couple more people to help on the development cycle so that we can code all the stuff that people wanted. And then sales started coming in on year two.
0: And again, the pain point is, can you just reemphasize what the pain point was, what you found out What actually worked for these people?
1: Yeah. So think about it. Valet parking evolved from I think it was in Boston. I can't remember the story now. I've told the story before. People used to leave their horses. Like you go to the pub, you would leave your horse there. And somebody would give you a ticket back in the 1800s. And you would use that ticket to get your horse back, depending it was like a busy place. So it's kind of like valeting your horse. And that's been going on from 1800s until 2000s. This is very inefficient. You don't have real-time visibility on how many cars you're parking. You don't know how many hours your employees are working in real time. You cannot process credit cards. You couldn't do what we call calculated rates. If you come in and I'm going to charge you $10 per hour, somebody had to kind of look at their watch and write down when you arrive and put in, okay, what's the time right now? It's 3 p.m. Let me write 3 p.m. When you're leaving, you could be leaving at 4 Thirty-nine, and then I got to manually calculate all that stuff and figure out. Okay, how much is that? Is that two hours? Okay, that's twenty bucks. All of those things were pain points. The owners of the parking operator they did not have the ability to be at every valet stand all the time, making sure that those cash transactions didn't end up on the attendant's pocket. That's also a big issue for them. Is whenever you're doing things with cash, cash disappears sometimes, and some of the attendants would say, "Okay, well, I'm going to do ten cars." And I'm going to take nine cars and I'm going to give it to the owner and then I'm going to take one car for me. I mean, not everybody, but we did run into some situations where that was the case. All of these things are pain point for the parking asset operator. Another big issue is you'll come in with your car and it has a big scratch in the back. They would try to write that down on the ticket that says, oh yeah, this car was scratched. So we brought in the ability to take pictures of that so that you can dispute it. The other thing is tracking keys. When you lose a key of a Porsche, that's a $400 key. So somebody misplaces a key or loses a key, that also is a big expense. So we provided tools to manage all these little things that are problematic for our valet operation.
0: Okay. Yeah. I think that makes much more clear what you're, the pain that you're talking about right now. Especially, I have heard in the past what you were saying about the parking attendant. Yeah. If the owner's not there and they're paying someone 10 bucks an hour to do a random lot that they own, they have no idea how many cars actually came in or out. Like, Let's just say it's for a game day parking, like an NFL game, and they have 50 spots, but they could... NFL game, it might be able to easier if you know you're going to always get 50. But if it's a random Friday or Saturday night, they could say only like 30 cars came in when actually 40 cars came in. And then that guy's holding 10 cars worth of cash. The owner who owns that lot would have no idea unless he's actually there.
1: That's right. So we provided them the ability to track all this stuff. It's still not impossible. So you can still do it, but it's a lot harder to cheat now right? with all this technology.
0: And that's the idea. You're never going to make it a hundred percent more effective, but the harder you make it, the less likely something like that's going to happen, especially with all the other scenarios that you're talking about, like lost keys. And then trying to figure out if they could actually end up getting more free parking space, you're saying that your software could actually do that?
1: Yeah, I mean, think about it this way. Just on the hourly-based calculations, if I'm doing this manually, let's say that you come in 1.15, okay? And then at 2 o'clock, it automatically jumps 20 bucks. What would happen when you're doing this manually is that the parking attendant will feel bad for the person that is paying and would give them the cheaper rate because it's only one minute apart. With our system, you scan that ticket, and the rate is the rate, and you cannot edit it. You can't change it. So the revenue uplift was just crazy. We almost guaranteed a 50% revenue uplift by just installing the application because of what we were seeing.
0: Okay. Yeah, this makes a lot more sense now that you're saying it. Because you're saying at first it was just a headache, and you wanted that pain pill for them, and you got that. But then you're telling them about how much extra revenue they can see, like the light at the end of the tunnel from doing that. And that makes a lot more sense because... Yeah, if you're the one sitting in that booth, letting cars in or out, they really don't care at the end of the day, like how much money the owner is making as long as they still have their job. But if you could increase that to the owner, then that person could get more money, too, who's actually working the lot.
1: Yeah, that's a return on investment. So we were able to prove that really, really quickly.
0: Okay. Was your first application of this product ready to go right away? Was it easy to kind of figure this thing out and make it happen?
1: Not at all, my friend. <laughs> I mean,
0: <laughs> it kind of sounds simple at first. You're like, Oh, it's just parking spots, but tell us about like the hurdles that you'd have to go through to get the software going.
1: The interesting part is that we didn't have somebody to copy think about Facebook, right? Everybody knows Facebook is super successful, but they kind of had my space to kind of understand what worked, what didn't work. We didn't have something that we can be like, okay, how can we do this? We spend a lot of time understanding what's the fastest way that I can get a vehicle to do what I need to do to capture the revenue, provide a good customer experience really, really fast. What should the user interface look like? Should we make them take a picture first? Should we make them scan this barcode first? Do we scan the VIN number first? So this is a lot of time that we had to spend out on the field. And then we had to deal with people that have bigger fingers than others. And we have older people that might not feel comfortable using an iPhone. All of these things on the user interface or what the program should look like, what we call the UI, the user interface, became challenging and also the process. And the most challenging part is that you think, oh, man, it's got to be easy, right? We're parking cars. The thing that people don't understand is that every parking operator likes to do things different, but we had to build the system with a lot of different flags. And we can say, "Okay, whenever we're talking to parking operator A, we're going to make the user flow like this when we're talking to parking operator B, we're going to reverse this one and do this one first and whatnot. So there's a lot of things there that we found to be challenging, which is to try to please a lot of our different clientele.
0: So did you just try to please one at first after you figured that out? Yeah, again, I could see different operators, just like anyone who might own multifamily property or whatever, they all look at it differently, or they might believe in upgrading certain units versus not. So there's all these little differences that maybe you wouldn't even thought of right when you started your parking lot software here.
1: The good thing for us is that we approach this as consultants, we're like, okay, we have no business getting into the parking business. We don't even know anything about it we were just like a huge sponge. We would just listen to a lot of people. And at the beginning, anybody that would give us a time of day, we would go and try to make them happy. Later on, we understood that, okay, as we started getting some fraction, then we just started listening to a set of people that we met in the industry that are well-known and that are respectable in the industry by their peers. So we kind of build a little tiny community of folks that we would say, hey. Here's going to be our roadmap for the next six months. What do you think? Does this make sense? Should I build this? Would you buy it? Would you pay extra for this? We did a lot of that, but at the beginning... Anybody that would say hi to us, we would go and talk to them and take some of their approach on how this should be built.
0: So you started building it. And why don't we go ahead and move on to year two? Because year one, at least it sounded like you got that funding and you're ready to expand a little bit more. Why don't we talk about middle of 2012 as far as year two?
1: Yes. Funding came in around April. We recruited a few folks. We dedicated that entire year to development. But now one of my co-founders is in charge of sales. He actually started booking deals. So people were buying this thing. And we had an actual product that people were willing to pay money for. I guess one of the mistakes that we did is that we focused everything on the product at the beginning and very little on like on marketing and sales. It was basically word of mouth. He would go to shows and he would drive around every city and knock on every valet stand and say, hey, let me show you this. A lot of them just laughed at him because they're like, you can't manage my revenue with an iPhone. And you got to remember an iPhone back then was a cool phone that not everybody had. Nobody thought of it as a business tool. Uber runs I don't know how many billions of dollars a day through mobile apps, but going back in 2011 and 12, that was not normal for any business application like Square didn't exist. None of these things existed. Well, I shouldn't say they probably were in their infancy. It wasn't normal back then. We got a lot of pushback. People wanted a computer with a scanner and infrastructure. And we're like, no, you just need an iPhone and a credit card reader. You don't need any of stuff. So that's what we were doing on year two, just getting the word out and developing the product.
0: Well, it just sounded like you'd have to move out of the apartment if you hired people because now you had money from that investment money to hire people and make more money for all of y'all.
1: You know what we did is we worked remote and then we would meet a couple of days in one of our investors office. We did that. And at the end of 12, we ended up moving into one of the investors, two offices that they gave us, two little tiny offices. And that's where we would go and do our business out of there. I think on year three or early year three, we ended up getting a little, I think it was like 1,200 square foot, little tiny office.
0: Looking back, at least in those first couple of years too, was there anything else that you would do differently that the people listening could learn from?
1: Well, you got to have a minimum viable product, but I would focus a ton more on getting the word out this exists and thinking about how to sell it. And a lot of this is my fault because I'm more of a product person and I was the CEO then and and I'm still today. I wanted to just have the best product out there. And I figure if I got the best product and people eventually buy it, what I failed to acknowledge is that if we got the best product and nobody knows it exists, it's just worthless. I would have invested a lot more time on determining who had this pain and how can I target those people and how can I get them to see what we have. And we probably would have grown a lot quicker. I'm pretty proud of the product and whatnot, but it doesn't really matter. we got a great product. People don't know about it. So that's one thing. What's one of the main things I think that I should have done differently? The other thing I would have done differently is believed in ourselves a little bit more. We were trying to please the clients too much, instead of thinking strategically, where should we be expending our time? Think about a five-year-old soccer team. We were running around crazy, kicking the ball with no strategy or anything like that. If I had to do it again, I would work on the strategy a lot more than I did in the past. In the past, it was straight up trial and error. Oh, is this not going to work? I'm going to try something else. But I think we should have trusted ourselves that if we built this, they will come and market it properly and just run it more strategically than trial and error.
0: Your background was in the software space, right? Not necessarily in the parking space because there wasn't any competitors, it sounded like, at least of what, what you We knew. had
1: some competitors that had computers. Straight up, a big computer with a scanner and credit card readers, just like a traditional point of sale system that you would see at a restaurant. That product was only viable if you had a booth, not if you were rolling out a little cart that holds your keys in the middle of the road. That product will never work there. So we did have some competitors from that standpoint.
0: Okay. So you mean like valet stand that rolls around versus an actual booth that someone sits in that's up and down with the arm?
1: Yes. If you go to all the major hotels... They have a valet cashier station and it's got air conditioning and it's got internet and it's got everything you need. And you put that big computer in there. We were at the beginning targeting the ones that roll out that cart to the middle of the road. Those guys don't have power. They don't have internet and so on. So they couldn't put that computer out there.
0: Yeah, because it keeps niching down as far as who you're looking for, at least in the beginning. It was good that you understood that when you're talking to people as far as your exact target audience. First, you might just think parking, but then you keep breaking it down more and more and more to make sure you find your right customer.
1: That's right. And at the beginning, we were focusing mainly on people that would roll that cart out to the middle of the road.
0: From there, as we're going into year three, and before I go there, I think that was really important what you said that I was trying to emphasize that. It seemed like your background was in product design or something like wanting to make this product as perfect as you could, because that's what you understood. But if you never market anything, even if I'm talking about this podcast or any other business that you're talking about, let's just say you have the best pizza in the whole world, doesn't necessarily mean everyone knows about it. So spending the time to do that marketing, like you're saying, I think it's something that maybe people, especially if they don't have background in it, kind of overlook that if they just build the perfect thing, it's going to happen, but not necessarily.
1: Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. I think I could have gone back in time and hired a marketing resource to help us just get the word out. Think about a big loudspeaker, just letting them know what flash was. And in a way that the consumer would understand. We should have shot a video really early on that says, hey, this is your world today. This is all the headaches that you have. This could be your world tomorrow. This is how this solution fixes all these problems. We should have done that before we wrote a line of code so that we could have determined if we had a market there, if people would say, oh, I love this. A lot of companies now, they just explain high level what it is and they put a, this little thing, learn more, give me your email address and I'll give you updates. We could have done a lot of things differently. And I think one of the mistakes was not hiring a marketing person or even a part-time marketing person to help with that effort.
0: Well, it seems like at least you've become successful today. So why don't we move on to year three as far as where. are you were the company size, and were you actually making more revenue at this point in time?
1: Yeah. So, year three, we were almost cash flow positive back then. I can't remember the number of employees. We probably had eight or 10 in year three. In year three, we would go and meet with key clients every quarter. And we would say, hey, this is what we're planning to build for the next six months or whatever. I want to make sure that this is aligned with your business goals and this is going to be useful for you. And we would do that with five or six top clients back then. We would go in and show our roadmap and they'll be like, yeah, yeah, well, that's great. And they wouldn't pay much attention to the roadmap. And instead, they would focus their attention to complain about the parks provider. And parks is an acronym Parking Access Revenue Control System. That's what the automated garages. That's what the hardware that is sold to manage that. It's called a park system. We go Q1, we meet with them, and then they start talking about all the issues that they have. Tickets getting cut in the machine and jamming, credit cards being eaten, how expensive it was to get a $200 technician to service it and take them a couple of days for them to service a unit and they just kept on complaining and complaining and we said hey you know we will listen our time will be up we'll leave and we come back next quarter and the same movie kept on playing again it's like okay yeah the up is great thank you for building the features everybody's happy but let me tell you about the problems that i'm having on the other side in the third quarter i was like well maybe this is a sign that we should be looking into that so i met with one guy and i said to him hey come on, tell me the truth. What are the things that I need to fix on the park side of the house in order for you to buy product from us? And we created a list. I think it was eight or 10 things. And he says, look, if you solve this pain points, we would buy this stuff from you. So I went back and talked to our team and said, hey, this seems kind of easy. Can we do this? We mocked up what it would look like, how we would price it, the functionality that would have, how it would solve all those pain points. And we went back to the guy and said, hey, man, look, This is how much it would cost. This is how it would look, blah, blah, blah. Are you serious about this? He's like, oh, I love this. It solves all these pain points. I like the approach you're taking. And if you build this, we would buy it. The good thing about that is that now I had an anchor client that is willing to spend money on a product if we build it. It took me a while to convince my investors. They're like, hey, wait a second. You finally now are making money on the other business. Why are you going to distract yourself from doing something else that you have no clue getting into? This is a different animal. You're not just providing an app to a person because if the app doesn't work, worst case scenario, they can just give you a ticket like they did for a 100 years. The risk there wasn't that high. The risk on automating a garage is a different story because you can lock people up in a garage if the thing doesn't work. It's a lot different. And then we didn't have resources nationwide to be able to support the system. All of our competitors, they sold to distribution and there was always a local distributor that could handle any issues that come up. We were at a significant disadvantage, but from the get-go, we built the product to be self-serve with USB components. We came up with the idea. I remember I was at the restaurant in Miami Beach talking to this client and he's like, well, how are you gonna support it? And I didn't have a good answer. And I said, hey, look, let me get back to you. Let me go to the bathroom. And I kid you not, there was an emergency box in the restroom. Like if you need a band aids and whatever, you can kind of buy them because it's on the beach and sunscreen and whatnot. And I came out of there and I said, hey, oh yeah, we got a solution for that as well. We call it the emergency kit. And the emergency kit is going to have all the critical components and we're going to sell you that. So if you have 10 machines, we're going to sell you one of these emergency kits. And if something breaks, you're going to be able to solve that problem yourself. And he loved that a lot because he was paying $200 to $300 an hour to have a specialized technician to come over and fix the machine. The way that we like to pitch it is kind of think about going to Best Buy and buying a printer. And you bring that printer, you go home, you connect it to that computer. And all of a sudden, you put ink in there and you put paper and you're printing. We ended up designing the system to kind of cover those basic needs that anybody can remove a four screws and a USB cable and be back up and running.
0: Do the Best Buy analogy again, because are you like the warranty coverage, I would think? That's what your emergency box is? Or I don't know if you want to use that analogy again or some other one to make sure we're on the
1: same page here. Let me see if I can paint it in a different way. Think about that machine when you go into the airport and you press a button and it spits out a ticket. Today, 99% of the garages in the United States run what we call a legacy system, which requires a ton of servers and a bunch of complicated stuff to make those gates go up and down. And the technicians that can actually open that machine and service it, there's only a handful around a city. Probably here in Austin, there's probably five people that can service one of these machines from one of these vendors, because you have to be a certified technician to be able to work in that machine. When you open that machine, you see a bunch of green boards with dots and a lot of cables going from one side to the other. And literally, you would gladly pay two to 300 bucks an hour for somebody to come deal with that because it's too complicated. What we ended up doing is we ended up taking a ruggedized, military-grade, Windows-powered tablet that runs similar operating system to like Windows 10. It's called Windows Embedded or Windows IoT right now. Anyway, so this is just a regular computer that most people are comfortable with and the connections are made with USB cables. So people are very comfortable knowing what a USB cable looks like. So in essence, that's what we did. We built it to be USB Peripheral base, so the credit card readers USB, the scanners USB, the proxy card readers USB, all of these components are USB devices. So whenever something goes down, you can remove four screws, take out that USB device, and put it back in and connect it to the USB hub. And now you're up and running. So we made it self serve. And that's why I was using the analogy of the printer, because you don't need Xerox or HP to come to your house to put toner into the printer. You don't need Best Buy to send the Geek Squad always to connect the printer to the computer. You can do that yourself. So before, or I should say our competitors, you're required to have one of the specialized technicians touch those machines.
0: Well, so did you have a whole new machine that you made and then your USB thing that you hook up to it makes it work again if something happens? Or what's the difference between your software or whatever application or hardware that you're making for the Gated parking system versus the valet parking system?
1: Oh, that's a great question. So we took the back end of the valet system, which had already all the basic things that we needed for the automated garage system for the park systems to work, and we were able to utilize the majority of the back end, north of 80% of it was already there. So then we build a aluminum box and we put the computer inside with a touchscreen and we put the credit card reader, the scanner and all these things. And we had a local company here in Austin build that for us. And the software from the backend standpoint was the majority of it built. And then we just wrote, I mean, we've been writing a lot more throughout the years, but at the beginning, we, you know, it only took maybe three months to write the front end software that would run inside the kiosk. Think about it kind of like a kiosk when you go to an airline to check in. We basically took that same approach and made it ruggedized to withstand the rain and the snow and all that stuff outside.
0: It's really insightful. So as soon as you said you were setting up the Patreon, it was just like, yeah, I'll help this guy. You know, I take a lot of value from it. You know, it's as simple as that. Yeah, I really appreciate that, man. Well, I was going to say, have you checked out our newest Patreon episode? Yeah, I was just like, oh, well, I'm in the car. I'll just listen to it, whatever. But I'm not getting anything out of this. And then you're like, wow. Wow. I'm not that naive or anything, but it really did open your eyes. This thing's simple enough just to make sure. So your valet parking before was all within like an app on the iOS that the guy yeah. who was working the thing would use. But now like, were you using like an Apple iPad kind of interface, if you will, or something like that. We can imagine, like you said, the airport kiosk makes the most sense. Yep. I could see how everything that you made, because the hardest part you already went through was trying to figure out like the hourly rates and all this other stuff versus now you're just making a bigger box on the front end for someone to actually press at everything.
1: Yeah, so think about it like this, like the iOS app, you had a human, which is a valet attendant, pressing buttons and doing transactions for a valet parking customer. On this kiosk, we basically took a lot of that code that did that and just made it self-serve just like you do when you go check in in an airline.
0: When you're selling it to these gated parking garages, it seems at least you have a warm lead because some of these guys had their own valet stand. This is how that happened for you. It sounds like because they felt comfortable with quote unquote new technology since they had been using you for valet parking, right?
1: Yeah, so that helped a lot. The fact that we were ready in the valet business and we had a new product, we had build credibility with some of these folks. And let me tell you, the first 10 garages, they were really, really scared because they trusted us on the valet side.
0: Well, you had to be scared too, because I agree with what you said. Someone could get locked in there or something, you know, like you were saying, if you didn't have a quote-unquote like emergency kit. But yeah, it seems like way more risk, like you were saying, versus the valet parking.
1: Oh, and these are unattended parking garages. I mean, there's nobody there. So when something goes wrong, it can go wrong, put it that way. This gate's have to go up and down all the time. You got people trying to get into work or trying to go home at five. It's a different animal. So yeah, it's total beast.
0: Those first 10 parking garages, did everything run smoothly or anything go wrong?
1: You're a funny guy. <laughs> so the first garage was here in Austin. It was a garage called Perry Brooks. And let me tell you that I spend personally inside the old booth, because it used to have a booth before, before we automated it. I spend about 60% of my time inside this booth for about eight weeks trying to understand how we needed to change things. So I can go back to the development team and say, hey, we need to tweak this. This is some of the challenges that we're having. The system's having this problems here and there. We're having internet problems because we're a cloud-based platform and we don't have infrastructure on site. So we had a lot of challenges making this thing fast while the data was on the cloud. It's so many freaking things that you can never imagine how difficult it was to get that first one to roll out. We finally got that one stable. And then what we learned is that most of the garages, they don't look alike. All the things that we made work on this one, it worked a little differently on the second one.
0: Yeah, because now you're doing with 3D multiple levels too, versus just one flat lot.
1: In a lot of different things that people don't think about, you have these nested areas that only certain people can get into, and you have all these different rules, and you have a lot of people trying to cheat the system, and you got to find ways for them not to, and you have different gates that you need to connect with, and you got to connect to different, what we call automatic vehicle identification systems. These are like the toll tax system or license plate recognition cameras, and the list just got more complex on all these different things that the system needed to do.
0: So was your head spinning after you started realizing how much more complicated it seemed like it was than maybe your original thought, or at least my original thought?
1: Around the six month mark, I got to a point where I was questioning to just end this nightmare and go back to what we had because it got to the point where it's like, this is insane. And every new one that we try to bring up, it had more challenges. It took a while where we have hundreds of garages today. Every time we had to bring one up for me not to lose sleep. After we got to the 45th or so, then I kind of come down a little bit. But the first 40 or so were terrible. And I mean, terrible. Every day I wanted to just call my old boss see if I could get my job back. (laughs)
0: Yeah, I mean, sometimes we minimize how much, not necessarily the risk, but I guess it's just like the pain that you have to think of if you're thinking about this thing night and day and someone not being able to get out of a garage or these extra headaches that if you had a nine to five that maybe you wouldn't have to think of,
1: right? You know, the first 10 garages, I was a support guy. We didn't even have a support person to support the product. I couldn't even hire somebody and train them or something because I didn't even know what to tell them to do because I didn't know what challenges we were going to face. My wife is freaking out when my phone is going off at two o'clock in the morning. And I'm like going to the other room and she's like, well, you're waking up the kids." So I ended up taking the calls in the freaking car. It was as terrible as you can imagine.
0: Were those first clients, were they paying you right away because this was new software? It sounded like at least you had good relationships with them from before with the valet, but like right when you started off doing it, were they paying right away? Because I could see maybe some of them might get frustrated and just end up firing you if you couldn't get it right, because it's your first time trying this too. Tell us about how that, if anything like that happened. So
1: luckily they did pay. We did have to give a lot of money back, especially because we're charging a monthly fee. So every time we had a major screw up, we would give them like the month, let's say they're paying us $1,000 a month. We would give them that $1,000 back. We had to do that And the first 40 garages, we probably had to do that 10 times or 15 times when it was so bad. We're like, okay, but the clients were great. And the the thing that helped us is that the status quo on the park system is so bad that they really wanted us to succeed because they wanted this vision that we were selling them. So they were willing to deal with the headaches with us. We were very lucky with the partners that helped us at the beginning.
0: Would you say 100% of the people that you're working with before were valet clients as well? I think if you went with just a cold customer, as far as who owned a parking garage if they didn't 100 percent understand your vision but they kind of thought about it and then if there was screw ups that they might just be like i'm done with this but if they saw what you were able to do again with the valet parking it seems like they'd be willing to hold on much longer if they understood how much you helped them there
1: 70 percent of our clientele today came from those relationships on the valet side, for sure. That was a huge, huge win for us, being able to utilize that customer base. And when we cherry-picked, even those first 10, we cherry-picked what we call the very innovators and worked with them and explained some of the risks and some of the things that we had fixed, some of the things that we're still trying to fix. And again, our competitors and the legacy providers, they had such a bad reputation that they just needed something to disrupt this space and they were willing to help because they just felt like they were fat and happy and needed somebody to kind of punch them in the nose. So that's why they stuck around and helped us get through this.
0: Tell us about those we understood, I guess financially, at least I do from the ballet stuff that you're doing, how much it helped them. but you're saying it sounded like these other guys were greedy that you were coming in when you're switching the gated parking management. Can you tell us the difference between like you and them? I mean, you told us about the mechanic that would come and fix their machine if they had to, but why was their pain so devastating when they wanted you to fix their gated parking system too?
1: Let me hit a few of them. One of the main ones is, are you familiar with PCI, the Payment Card Industry Data Security Standard, PCI DSS? Ever heard of that?
0: No. So why don't you tell us so we're all on the same page?
1: Yeah. So basically anybody that accepts credit cards, like if you sell a software that handles credit card payments, physical credit card payments and online and whatnot, there's this regulation that you got to get certified and be PCI compliant. What happens a lot with the legacy systems is that every time something moves, these guys will try to sell you new software or new hardware to maintain PCI compliance. And if you're not PCI compliant, you can't accept credit cards, so you can't make any money. So these guys were, people might disagree with this comment that I'm about to make, which is they might have been taking advantage of some clients who forced them to upgrade and charge them a $45,000 upgrade fee so that they can continue to be PCI compliant, which maybe that wouldn't have cost the company that much money. But they can get away with it because there's no alternative. So what am I going to do? If I don't want to take a boat or a submarine and I want to go to Europe, I got to probably take a plane. I mean, there aren't that many hot air balloons that can take me over there. Things like that were coming up and also their fees were getting really high. They would go in and sell to distribution and one distributor in Florida might charge $100,000 for a system And the other one, for the same system, for the same number of equipment, might charge $150,000 in North Carolina. Kind of like the dealership model. I can go buy a Ford F-150 and pay X here in Austin and pay Y in San Diego. And these guys are national players that wanted to have kind of like the same price all over the place. But because these other guys were selling to distribution, they didn't have that. We ended up changing the model where we sell direct. We installed Direct, we support Direct. Not only did we create better technology and moved it all to the cloud so they didn't have to have any servers on site and have to deal with a lot of the security and the PCI and the patches and the maintenance and whatnot. But what we did also is from the business model standpoint, Instead of me selling you a quarter of a million dollar system and saying, hey, here you go, good luck. And by the way, every time that that thing breaks, call me and I'm gonna charge you two to 300 bucks an hour to send somebody to fix it. We took a different approach and we said, listen, we're gonna charge you X amount up front per machine and then we're gonna charge you a monthly fee. And guess what? If the system doesn't work, you're not gonna pay me the monthly fee. I'm going to be on your side. And if something breaks, I'm going to try to help you as much as I can to fix it because I want to make my money. Instead of me having to invest this quarter of a million dollar upfront, front, I'm going to spend maybe $50,000 upfront front and then write monthly checks if the system is still doing what it's supposed to. Oh, and by the way, when something breaks, you're going to have an emergency kit that you're going to be able to bring the system back up on your own without having to wait for a certified technician to come over. So your downtime is going to go down significantly. The combination of all this really what started giving us some success on the deployment of these machines.
0: That makes a lot of sense, not even just economical sense, but I guess there'd be built up resentment if they were constantly, like you were saying, it was out of your control, maybe even out of your budget when they're forcing you to upgrade using their software and you don't have any choice. Those guys just got tired of dealing with that and they saw that where your heart was that you were trying to get this thing done. And I would imagine that, yeah, you reimbursing them back the money if, if the month didn't seem like it worked out well. If you didn't do that, I don't know. There might be resentment built up where they're like, screw these guys, whatever. But it sounds like they have been wronged enough, like you were saying, from the old gated parking systems.
1: Exactly. And that's the key. I mean, they felt so bad with their current providers. They're like, look, anything that they could do to change the landscape of the industry, they were willing to do it. Not all of them, but a few of the innovators.
0: Were all these early clients, they were all in Austin, Texas?
1: I wish. That would have made (laughs) it a lot easier. Right. They're all over the nation. So, this parking operators. They have a contract in Key West, Florida, and San Diego, and San Francisco, and Dallas, and Chicago, Boston, all over the place. Luckily, the first garage was in Austin. Our second one was in Houston. Our third one was in San Diego. We can get to Austin. It was like two miles from the office. So that wasn't a huge problem. The one in Houston, I had to make a lot of trips to that one. And then I spent a ton of time in San Diego.
0: You have to drive out there every time. Because that's about a two-hour drive, right? Yeah. To Houston. That's right. Versus two minutes. And then San Diego, I would imagine you have
1: to fly. That's right. <laughs> Going there. Yeah. I know the Sioux very well. I know a lot of all kinds of stuff in San Diego.
0: Tell us about like year three to year four. I said... You had expanded into this gated parking system. It sounded like you were making profit, sorry, in year four.
1: Well, we took a lot of that money and started investing it on the other side of the business. So we were still not making a profit. We were kind of running on the break-even standpoint. But things were looking good because we had uh, two successful products. The market was adopting it. We had more innovators catching on and so on. That certainly really, really helped. We were able to hire more people in our support team. And we started having more of a real startup at that point because we had validated products. We had a market. We knew how to sell it. We knew how to install it, how to support it, and things like that.
0: So what other points in the business? Were there any other turning points from about 2013, 2014 till today that we could learn from?
1: In those years, we're sticking to our knitting there, listening to clients, doing a lot of development. We, at that point, then started doing actually marketing. We started going to the parking shows and telling more people about it, making a lot of videos and pushing it to social media, things like that. So the marketing engine started kicking in. From a progress standpoint, it was trying to get a city. So one installation of this automated garage in one city was actually the key. And it was really, really difficult. People didn't want to hear that it was working fine in Austin. That wasn't good enough for them because they felt that... In the traditional system, they needed a local person to come fix it all the time. So they were really scared with our model of not having a local support. We started teaching them about the emergency kit and teaching them that we support all this stuff from the cloud. It was just very, very difficult to get one operator or one asset owner to put it in a new city. We had to do different marketing strategies and incentives and whatnot to get these people to roll out the first one. So that was quite complicated to get into the first city. So Austin, obviously we're local. It wasn't that terrible. Houston was. San Diego was, Miami was, Boston. I mean, every other city was terrible. Even Dallas, which we weren't even that far. We didn't get to Dallas until we had another five. I think we had eight cities already that had already installed. The cool thing was that the minute that somebody can drive by and see it on that city, then they're like, oh, well, if it works for them, it's going to work for me. It made it a lot easier to sell. But getting the first city was really, really challenging.
0: Well, to me, I would almost think if I were you, well, maybe I'll just pay some dude a thousand bucks a month and make him, quote unquote, my operator. Maybe pay him 500 bucks a month, whatever, where he doesn't do anything other than come over there with the USB thing and plug it in himself because that's what they're used to, I guess. You know what I'm saying? Even though they don't necessarily need it. But I guess you just kept wanting to try to educate them until they understood it. I could understand that they used to have someone being operated, but after you're in a couple different cities, especially if they're far away from Austin, Texas, you would think that they would understand that, hey, how is it different from San Diego versus if you're in Boston or something like that?
1: If the parking industry moved quicker, I probably wouldn't be having this conversation with you, but it moved so slow and we couldn't afford to have technicians in a city. That model is very expensive. Think about Tesla. Tesla could have sold cars through Your traditional dealers. And they chose not to because they felt that the dealers wouldn't be able to sell it properly and educate the clients properly. We weren't necessarily following Tesla. We ended up doing what they do out of necessity, not out of strategy, if that makes sense.
0: No, it does. I mean, I was saying, let's say you have different people who work with you right now across the U.S., right, as far as maybe personnel or employees in-house, or is everyone there in Austin, Texas?
1: We have about 82 employees now, and the majority are in Austin. We have one in Atlanta now, one in South Florida, and two in San Francisco, and one in L.A., and one in Denver.
0: I was just saying that maybe if, let's say the guy in Atlanta is just a developer for you, right? That he knows nothing about the parking. Well, I can quote unquote, just make him, maybe they feel comfortable enough that I'm like, Hey, you're a special parking guy too. Cause this is what they're right. used to, yeah. even though you don't need to be, it's just like, if this is going to get me over the hurdle, then maybe that'll work. But
1: yeah, we had about 12 employees back then and all of them were in Austin. So, okay. So yeah, yeah you couldn't have done yeah, something we, like that. You okay. couldn't do that. Yeah, no. The majority of our growth from an employee standpoint happened in the end of 16th, 17th, and 18th.
0: Yeah. So I guess you understood what I'm saying. Is yeah. Yeah. Of course. Trying to make these people feel comfortable, even if it doesn't make sense. I can give anyone a title if it makes y'all feel better. Right. <laughs> Tell us about the last couple of years of growth, if you will, before we wrap up here, as far as what's occurred and what we can learn yeah. from.
1: Yeah. At the end of 16th, I raised another round of funding and was able to raised that money mainly on the parks because we created the park system. And the business model was pretty good that we were able to go get other investors that were really interested in this model. On 2017 alone, we hired like 30 people. And on 18, we hired like another 24 people. The significant amount of growth for us has been in the last two years. I mean, to give you an idea, we just completed in 2018, the largest paid parking facility in North America, which is the Texas Medical Center campus in Houston. The Texas Medical Center is actually the largest medical center complex in the world. We go from having an infant product that we had built a couple of years earlier to running the largest paid parking facility in North America. That can kind of give you an idea Think about it like this, like everybody was comfortable going to Blockbuster, paying for overpriced candy and late fees and all that stuff. And then Netflix comes over and kind of destroys them. We are in the process of that disruption. This Texas Medical Center project that we just finished, most of the world doesn't even know that we're finished and that we run that project. So we're going to start making a lot of noise in 2019 to kind of let everybody know this is, hey, maybe the Flash Park system, it's only for small venues, but it can't run anything large. So we'll be able to continue to grow now that we have that under our belt. And a lot of people are now becoming more comfortable with the cloud. That's another thing that is very different about us is that there's no servers on site and whatnot. And now we go from the innovators to the early adopters and to the early majority. I think here in the next year or so, we might be able to go into that early majority where people feel a lot more comfortable not to have to deal with patches and security things and antivirus and all that stuff and let us manage all that on their behalf.
0: Did you do anything to celebrate that last contract with the Tuscus Medical Center?
1: We celebrated in the office in our company meeting. We haven't done... Was it just
0: like, yay, no champagne popping or anything? No, it...
1: we actually did pop a bottle and everybody had a zip. It was great. It's a big accomplishment for us, not only because we were able to do it with such a young product, but we did the installation of over 200 lanes in about a 45 working days. And nobody in the industry can believe it. I think out of our competitors, we said that we were going to do it in like four months. And our closest competitor was going to do it like in seven or eight months or something like that. And we were able to do it in 45 working days. We we're super proud of our operations team for being able to deliver that.
0: Was that your made it moment? Or was there something else as far as you feeling comfortable about the company making it? Especially when you're talking about this gated parking management, almost wanting to give up and having all those headaches, at least in the beginning. Has there been a moment along the ride that you found like, okay, I made the right choice, we're going to make it and we're going to keep growing?
1: Yeah, I think when we hit like the 100th garage and we were kind of getting in a rhythm and we were doing things like the Miami Heat Arena, the Toyota Center in Dallas and other major facilities around the U.S., things were just like, okay, we can deploy this one and we don't have to write any code or nothing is really breaking. It felt pretty good. We have to do a much better job at celebrating things. I'm glad you reminded me. I just made a note of that. We just had a Christmas party. We celebrated a little bit, but I think we need to do that more often throughout the year.
0: The reason I bring that up, I'm the exact same way. And I think so many entrepreneurs are like that way because you have to get used to the roller coaster ride. I never think too high. At least I try not to or try to get too low especially like high achievers, I barely celebrate anything. It's like I did what I was supposed to. And I mean, I just heard this brought up, I think maybe years ago, that you need to take the time to just even celebrate for an hour or two or something like that because then it re-energizes you, but even though like, then you're ready to jump back on it again. But I just find that a lot of high achievers kind of have that same issue as I do about actually like, hey, yeah, be excited about something we've done because you only live once.
1: Yeah, no, and I think it's also mainly for the rest of the staff Right, right, you know, that's exactly. To them. For sure, got keep them motivated and whatnot, and they appreciate that. They like that.
0: So I guess looking back on your story, I don't know if we touched too much on the personal side. I mean, you did a great job telling your business side, and I really appreciate all the analogies because I think that helped clarify a bunch of stuff. But. As an entrepreneur and your growth over these last several years with the company, is there anything like last points that you want to leave for the audience as far as them, if they're wanting to grow their business or maybe they're in their first few years of growing a business, what suggestions do you have for them?
1: You know what? A lot of people are like, hey, go follow your passion and go find something you're passionate about. And I kind of disagree with that. I think you should go try to do things that you're good at. And that doesn't mean that you're going to be passionate about it because this is freaking hard. And I can be passionate about, I remember being in middle school and high school, I was really passionate about playing basketball, (laughs) but I wasn't as good to make it to the NBA, right? So business is really, really difficult. There's a chart that I keep on my desktop, and I'm actually opening it up right now. And this is a study. We use scaling up from how we run the business. Are you familiar with scaling up? No, tell us about it. Burn Harsh is the author of this book called Scaling Up. And it's basically, if you don't know anything about business and you want to run a very successful business, it kind of gives you a recipe on what to do, how to plan, how to manage people, how to come up with a strategy, how to execute on that strategy. It's a pretty good book. In one of those books, there's a page. And they did a study on 20, I think back then it was like 28 million firms. And it shows how many businesses in the world out of those 28 million firms make more than a million dollars, are from zero to a million dollars a year. And that is 96% make less than a million, okay? More than a million, it's 4% of all the businesses. And more than 10 million is 0.4%. And north of $50 million, there's only 17,000 businesses in the world out of their research that make more than $50 million. This is challenging. This is really, really difficult. So you shouldn't hate what you're doing. You should just be good at it. And you should think about it as a job. And hopefully, it's kind of like the 80-20 rule where you only hate it 20% of the time and you can tolerate it for 80% and you're good at it because it's really hard. That's something that you kind of find something that you're good at that you could have a vision for and deliver on that. The other thing I would say is, you gotta be able to know when you have to pivot and you gotta keep your ears open to pain points. I use the words pain points. If I have a headache, how can I get the headache to go away? Maybe ibuprofen or Tylenol or something. If you're able to find a problem in any market that you're in and you have a solid solution that makes financial sense, so if you buy something for five bucks and you can sell it for $10 and there's a market for that, then go after that. If you can kind of determine what those pain points are and you have a pretty good solution and you're good at that, not necessarily you don't have to be passionate about it. You just got to be good at it. Or you can surround yourself with people that could be good at that. Then I think you should try it. But consider this. This is really, really difficult. You got to be mentally strong to weather the storm. I remember in that first garage, a couple of mornings when I saw the sun come up, 5.50 a.m. or 6 a.m. or whatever it was, and a couple of days, I just had tears coming out of my eyes. I'm like, what am I doing? Why is this stuff not working yet? Am I losing my mind? Maybe I should go back to my job, et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot of times where you're going to want to give up. So you got to find things that are at least you're good at. So it's not that difficult whenever you want to give up.
0: And what kept you going when you were at those points? Because I think all of us reach those breaking
1: points in
0: starting a business.
1: I just refused to fail. <laughs> I didn't want to be that guy that gave up and did it. So I wanted to give it all I had. And Albert Einstein used to say that he wasn't smart. He used to say, if I'm quoting this right, he used to say that he stuck with problems longer than most people and ended up eventually solving them. So that's kind of like my philosophy. It's like, look, I might not have all the answers today. If this is logical and there's a return on investment at the end of the tunnel, let's see how long we can go at it before we give up.
0: And I think that's really important, again, for anyone who's listening. When you reach those points and you feel like you can't do it, it's like, what are you going to give up? Again, I have the same mentality. I'm like, I'm not. I'm just going to keep going until I figure it out. There's a way to figure it out. I'm like, if someone in the past was able to figure this out, I can figure this out even though it might be in a different industry or whatever, especially your two points here that you said at the end. Um, normally, I don't plug other episodes, but I'm going to here because they are exactly these two points that you covered. When he's talking about Vern Harnish on episode 88, we have Trevor Hill, and he is a huge Vern Harnish fan. And I think he kind of finds in the same category as you. He's quote unquote like a water entrepreneur and gets into the water industry as far as going into different governments, helping them fix their water supplies and then reselling it. But it's that same type of thing that you were saying. It's not like he necessarily had a passion of that right away, maybe like you do the parking, but he was saying just how much he was a believer in the Vern Harnish method, so I feel like you'd relate to him a lot or anyone who's listening who wants to learn a little bit more about Vern Harnish. And the second thing that you were talking about was having a pain pill, finding that something that someone needs. In episode ninety seven we have Sergi who talked about basically his construction company work. He was trying to find that pain pill that someone needed, like you do for your product. I think those two points that you said were very important and I hear throughout our other interviews like People find these commonalities of these things that you were saying that make them successful. So hopefully people can learn from them and learn from you on what you're saying here.
1: Yeah, that would be wonderful. I think one of the ways that I talk to other people about this is when I open the refrigerator, there might be some meat. There might be some eggs and there might be other things like ice cream and ketchup. If you have the ability to find the meat and the eggs, the necessities of businesses or consumers versus the ice cream. I mean, don't tell me wrong. There's a lot of companies that are very much success on the ice cream side of the house. But sticking back to the analogy, this core things, the water, the meat and the eggs, and you can disrupt that in some way or make it cheaper or faster or better or whatever, that's what I would focus on, things that are less flashy and have a clear return on investment.
0: Yeah. So I guess that's definitely some burn harness stuff because I can remember the quotes from that episode. Trevor Hill kept emphasizing that. And yeah, hopefully everyone just make sure you keep your ice cream in the freezer or else it's going to melt probably. But <laughs> we get it. Yeah. Because I mean, again, if you can fundamentally change, I think it seems like it's taking you longer to do this business as far as having people change over. But long term, I could see obviously the financial reward and the ability for your company to grow well, here using that method.
1: Absolutely, man. That's exactly what it is. We're lucky enough now that this product is very sticky and that we're able to, to make it successful. And once this equipment is bolted down and it's not giving anybody problems, people are dealing with other things within their life and not, do I need to go buy another parking equipment, right? Absolutely.
0: Well, thank you again for doing the interview here, Juan. If people wanted to reach you and say thank you for doing the interview, is there a best way for them to reach you as like email, LinkedIn, or something like that?
1: Yeah, I'm definitely on LinkedIn. Let me see if I can remember my handle.
0: Oh, well, yeah. There's probably a lot of Juan Rodriguez's and LinkedIn. Yeah, man. But I have tip I want to say thank you because I know from time to time, and I really do appreciate when anyone reaches out to me thanking me for doing the interview. I mean, I do the easy stuff, which is just interview you, obviously, but I think that really motivates and drives me to keep doing the podcast. But for them to maybe say thank you to you personally, is it right if they maybe email you?
1: Of course. Yeah. It's juan at flashparking.com.
0: Well, thank you again for doing the interview, and we really appreciate it, Juan.
1: Sounds good. Have a good one. Take care. Thanks for having me.
0: I know what you're thinking right now. You want more tech based interviews, don't you? Well, if you become a Patreon member, We've got plenty of extra interviews for you right now. Just jump on over to the Patreon feed. Plus, I've got a special spreadsheet that has every interview categorized by industry. So you can easily jump to interviews that will help your business immediately. So to become a member, just check out our website, millionaire-interviews.com. And if you made it this far into the podcast and you aren't a Patreon member, well, then what's holding you back? Message me on Pornhub and let me know. My username is bizboy69. That's B-I-Z-B-O-I-6-9.